Good to be with you this morning to open up God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. In a minute, I'll have you stand, but not yet. Uh, one of our biggest problems in life is we don't want anyone to boss us around, right? We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. Um, we'd rather call the shots, and it's rooted in sinful pride. I know how it feels. I, I inwardly rebel every time I'm in a group and someone tells the whole group to do something, like stand up. I never want to do it. Uh, I'm like the kid whose mom said, you know, go stand in the corner, and, and, and the kid says, I'm standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside. Now, that's me. Um, we tend towards defiance, don't we? We tend towards um, failing to recognize that we all obey someone. Think about it, just on the way to church today, when you stopped at a stop sign or a stoplight, you were obeying civil authorities. When you do your homework, kids, yeah, you're obeying your teacher or your mom. Um, when you say please and thank you, you're obeying social norms. Bob Dylan's saying, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And he was actually right with that line. It's scary true. Our options are only two. God or Satan. We will surrender our will to one or the other. And here's the question. Here's the question. Who are you obedient from the heart to? Who are you obedient to the heart, from the heart to? You can boil it down this way. Will it be Jesus and scripture or, or your mind and man's wisdom? And so we're in Romans 6 today, and um, in this passage, I see good news for Christians, as well as strong encouragement to live the truth we know. We're going to be in, in Romans 6, verses 15 and 19 today. I'm coming to you with what comes next in Romans. I'm not uh, jumping around. I'm committed to expositional preaching, where you go verse by verse through books in the Bible, where you read it and explain it and apply it in context and let God speak. Uh, it's how a church learns to love God's word together, uh, where you keep pointing to the word of God, and you, with all your heart, seek to handle it rightly in context and preach the whole counsel of God. So I want you to stand with me, please. It's better when someone says please, isn't it? I bring to you the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God for the people of God, for the glory of God. And I, as always, every time we open up the word, we ought to expect God to bring about life change. So let's read. Here we go. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now 
present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you are here. Thank you that you have spoken truth we need. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word today. We pray by your spirit that you would bring about whatever change is needed in our hearts. We pray that you would comfort those who are hurting and challenge those who are complacent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've been trying to get Lydia to talk to me recently, and she's talking to me now. It's great. I love you, girl. All right. William Tyndale. Uh, in 1534, uh, wrote an intro to Romans, and it's a, it's a beautiful intro, but he said it's pure gospel. Romans is pure gospel. And he said that every Christian should know it by memory. Can you imagine knowing Romans all by memory? Some of you might. He said it's the daily bread of the soul. He said you can't read it too often or study it too well. And he said, the more it is studied, the more it is chewed, he said, the pleasanter it is. The more pleasant it is. The more it is searched, he said, the preciouser things are found in it. Yes, he said, pleasanter and preciouser. When you think of Romans, you should think God's righteousness revealed in the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. God justifies guilty sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Romans is about the gospel. Just don't worry about other things. What you, a lot of people are like, oh, Romans is like just all about theology. There's tons of theology in it. There's tons of theology throughout the whole Bible. Theology about God. This is, the Bible is about God. The Bible, the Bible is, is God's revelation to us. But Romans is intensely practical. Theology is intensely practical. You should have solid beliefs on which you base your actions. And so it's about believing the gospel, chapters 1 through 4. We've gone through all those basics of mankind's sin and God's provision of the way of salvation. We're in the the section of Romans now about resting in the gospel. Romans chapters 5 through 8. Sanctification. The struggles that come with it and then ultimate victory in Christ. We'll move on into chapters 9 through 11 and rejoicing in the gospel and the doctrines of God's electing grace and his sovereignty and man's accountability. And then Romans ends with chapters 12 through 16, living the gospel, how we are to live based on what God has done in Christ. But you don't have to wait until chapters 12 through 16. We see something right here today. There is an imperative in the last verse we're looking at, there's an imperative in verse 19. Uh, and, and I keep saying this over and over and over again. The indicatives of the Bible, what God has done, should then drive us to the imperative, what we should do in response. Okay, don't jump to the imperative without understanding the indicative. All right. Romans is all about being unashamed of the gospel and uncondemned by sin and unconformed to the world. And you need to remember this too, Paul didn't write Romans in an idealistic vacuum, okay? He wasn't writing in, 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 a, in an idealistic mindset that wasn't tethered to daily life and the struggles of daily life. 
He was on his third missionary journey. He was often in danger. He was writing to those whose loyalty to Christ put them on hit lists. Rome was the most important city in the Roman Empire. It was founded in 753 BC on the banks of the Tiber River, 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. Population over 1 million. Big city with many beautiful buildings, the Emperor's Palace and Circus Maximus and the Forum. But many of the residents lived in slums. Many of the residents, upwards to 250,000, were slaves. Rome was a city of lust and sin. Uh, Rome was a city of huge economic injustice. It was a city built on and fed by the violence of war. And, and this is striking. I said this at the beginning, back in September when we first got into Romans. Paul focuses on the gospel. It would have been easy then, just like it is for us now, to focus on the problems. He didn't give a social manifesto. It would be easy to presume that the answer lies in something other than Jesus and the gospel. The biggest need that they had was for the gospel to be applied to their situation. That's the same for us, isn't it? You need the gospel applied to your situation today. Gospel is the only solution for our problems. In biblical counseling, I ask two primary questions. What does the Bible say? Let's start there. I'm doing biblical counseling. What does the Bible say? And how does what Jesus did at the cross transform this? How can he redeem this really bad situation? You know, I want you to see how majestic and glorious Jesus is. So here's what you see today. And it's because of how glorious and majestic Jesus is. God wants us to serve him obediently from the heart. You probably got that from the title of the sermon, right? You probably figured that out when you're walking in. You're like, huh, this is probably going to be about being obedient from the heart. God I don't know maybe God has set those in Christ free to yield to him obediently from their hearts so that they would glorify him this is what Romans 6 15 to 19 is telling us put yourself at God's disposal yield yourself to him unreservedly seek Christ's kingdom and his righteousness Desire his will. This passage starts with a question, just like in verse 1. It's the kind of question Paul is anticipating from those opposed to the gospel. Since we're not under law, does that mean there are no moral standards? Look at verse 15. What then? Are we to sin Because we're not under law, but under grace. He had just said that in verse 14. You are not under law, but under grace. Probably the most misused Bible verse in the Bible to excuse sin. Hey, don't tell me what to do. I'm not under law, but under grace. Misunderstanding. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? His answer, just like in verse 1, by no means. You're crazy if you think that. You're wrong if you think that. There are moral standards, is what he's saying. There are absolutes. You are no longer under law as a condition for acceptance with God. You are now under God's grace. The freedom in Christ. You're justified. You were instantly declared righteous. You're positionally sanctified. But now you're in the process of being 
progressively sanctified and growing into the reality of your position in Christ. Seated with Christ in the heavenlies, but slugging it out here on earth. Hopefully not little, literal slugs. <clears throat> the kind that crawl and the kind that come at you. The question and answer on the table, Paul goes on now, and he's talking about growing in holiness. He's talking about sanctification. He's reminding his readers of their past slavery to sin and their new slavery to righteousness. He wants them to live in submission to their new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to be entangled with the sins of their former life that because sin had no longer any claim on them, no longer any power over them. So this passage breaks down nicely in its context. Three, three points. Verse 16, you're going to serve someone. Okay? In general, you're going to serve someone. You're going to be a bondservant to someone. Secondly, in verses eight, 17 and 18, you have been set free in Christ. God has transferred you. He has committed you to himself. He has put you in Christ. And then verse 19 you must yield to God. Obey him from the heart based on who he is and what he has said. And the idea for you today and in me today is that if you want to be healthy in Christ, you, you need this. This is not make it up as you go. This is more like paint by the numbers, right? God has marked it out. And it will look different in the life of every believer. The big ideas are the same, though. All of this gets applied to all of us as the Spirit impresses it upon our hearts. So number one, you're going to serve someone. You're going to be a bond servant of someone, verse 16. Verse 16, do you not know that, look at that verse, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? So either of sin, deliberately, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You are obeying. That literally means to hear under another person, to be a subordinate, to listen attentively, to, to conform to their commands and their authority, and to, to listen up and obey them, to comply, to submit, to obey their advice. It's mostly used in the Bible of God, of, of obeying God, but here it's like you're going to obey whoever you submit yourself to. And it's, it's contrasting sin, you notice that, verse, six, verse 15, and then verse, excuse me, verse 16, sin or obedience. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say sin or, or God. This is sin or obedience. And we'll look at that a little bit later. We're going to get into this. It'll, it'll, you'll see it building here. But when you present yourself, you yield your will, okay? You surrender you give yourself over to someone else's desires. He calls them obedient slaves. So you're going to be an obedient slave to someone. You're going to be a bondservant, doulos. Now, when we think slavery, we automatically, because we're in America, we think about all the horrible things that happened in American slavery. But if you think about what it was like back then, it gives you a little bit different picture, okay? Slavery in biblical days often meant you voluntarily, willingly sold yourself into the service of another. Again, you got a city of a million people and 25% of them are slaves. It's been suggested that maybe upwards to, to 40% of the population 
at that point in time were slaves. And, and you would do this sometimes out of a need for survival, practical necessity. So a lot of people chose to be slaves. I know that sounds weird to our, to our American mind, but the picture would have been clear to them. You present yourself to anyone as an obedient slave. You're a slave of the one you obey. But the point getting made here is there's only two options in the realm of the spirit. <laughs> there's only two options in the spiritual realm, sin or God, Satan or God, sin or righteousness, sin or obedience. You're slaves to the, to the one you obey. Again, sin leads to death. Obedience leads to righteousness. And what this is telling us is what we know, and what we know after the fact many times, that sin effectively uh, essentially hems you in. It paints you into a corner where you can only see sin and its pleasure before the kickback, you know, before the double whammy hits and you realize you've been deceived. But then he says, but, but now in the best possible way for a Christian, something, something great happens. God hems you in with a hedge of protection. Paints you into the corner of divine truth, which is the most freeing thing in the world and it basically opens it all up for you. You're either going to be a slave to sin or a or slave to obedience and righteousness. And what we're going to see in verse 17 now as we move into that is it's, it's based in the heart. It's grounded in the heart, the command center of your being, the, the, the headquarters, the home office. The part of you that thinks and, and wills and makes decisions. So look at, look at verses 17 and 18. The second point here, Christians have been set free. They've been transferred. Okay? So, interesting, this passage doesn't say Jesus' name. Now, last week, I loved it because someone came up to me after the service and said, you, you know, one of the kids said, uh, one of you guys, who, who said it? Who said it? Who was it? Last week, you said Jesus 152 times, Pastor Mike. Oh, I said, oh, excuse me, you're right. You're so right. I said sin 152 times last week. But I did say Jesus a lot, right? Yes. Jesus is better, okay? Hopefully you hear it. I got to tell you a little story real quick, okay, sidebar real quick. When I was a brand new believer, and I was going to uh, the church I grew up in that didn't preach the gospel, okay, I didn't get saved through the ministry of that church, and um, I, I kept going there with my Bible, I was like the only person bringing the Bible, and I would sit there in church as, as a 20-year-old, actually, thinking, praying that, that the pastor would say the name of Jesus even one time. And there were often sermons where there was no, no, not even a mention of Jesus. It, it just, it was like, wow. I could, you know, of course, you, could, you can't stay at a church like that. Anyway, back to this, okay? Um, where was I? Oh, he's not talking about Jesus here. Yes, he is. But he didn't say Jesus. Well, you just got to remember something. You know, you airlift yourself into four verses in, in Romans, Okay? You've got to think of the context, the immediate context. You've got to think, I just got dropped here. Let's say you're brand new at Grace. Let's say you haven't been here in a long time. And you're like, well, it's not talking about Jesus. Well, just look through the rest of Romans, okay? Just look through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5, and, and especially the very beginning of Romans. Just look at that just for a minute. Just, I mean, humor me. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. What's Paul talking about here in Romans? Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. All right? Okay. 
Now, what we see in, in verses 17 and 18 is God commits us to himself as slaves of righteousness and that our consciences become bound to obey God. Look at verse 17. This is an awesome verse. It starts, thanks be to God. I hope you're thankful to God. What he's saying here, thanks be to God, is this is from God. This is going to be credited to God. God did it. He gets the glory for what I'm about to say. I just want you to pause again, and I want you to take a moment and thank God for something. Just thank God for something. Seriously, just, just thank him. You don't have to do it out loud. Just do it in your heart or whatever you want because I know you're rebelling. If you're thanking God, guess what you're not doing? Hmm. You're not complaining. You're not judging. You're not spreading strife. You're not being unkind. You're not being selfish. Thanking God is one of the purest forms of worship for a Christian. A thankful heart is grateful for Jesus and what he has done. A thankful heart blesses the Lord and seeks to be obedient from the heart. A thankful heart has been captured by the Lord which is what this verse is going to tell us here. It says, you were once slaves of sin and you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. What? Why didn't it just say obedient from the heart to God? It says to the standard of teaching. Literally to the form of doctrine, standard is a word for a mold a craftsman would use to cast, let's say, molten metal. It's, it's uh, the word for type. It's the mark. Of, the, the, uh, of a blow, it's an impression, it's a stamp made by a die. And this is a standard of teaching. Teaching here is the apostolic teaching. When Paul uses that, that form of the word specifically, he's referring to what the apostles taught. So Titus 1.9, an elder must hold firm in accordance with, uh, with the, the teaching, with the faithful word, and the apostles' teaching, if you remember in Acts 2.42, they were, the disciples were committing themselves to the apostles' teaching. And he's talking about teaching that's been handed down. You can see this throughout the New Testament. But a, a, a body of truth was handed down from the apostles in their teaching, in their preaching, and it was binding on believers. It was scripture. And it was in context with all the written scripture at that time, and it was new revelation at that time. It was before the canon of Scripture, before the collection of Scripture was, was closed and was set. And we got the, the, how many books in the Bible? The 66 books of the Bible. The whole body then of, of apostolic teaching that was available then. Now for us, we would, we would say it's the Bible, okay? You say it's the New Testament and it's really the whole Bible which centers on, guess what the main point of the Bible is? Jesus. <laughs> You're right, okay, uh, it centers on the gospel. But it says here that the teaching to which you were committed. I read that and immediately I think, yeah, I'm committed to it. I'm committed to it. A lot of you are committed to a lot of things. You're like, I'm committed to this. I, I'm, I'm committed to the teaching. You're like, I'm here at church because I'm committed to hearing the word preached and all that. Well, let's look at this phrase. It's not what this phrase is talking about. It's like, the, it's talking about the exact opposite. You didn't commit yourself to anything. This is what it's saying. It, it's basically saying 
that you were delivered over to the teaching. Basically, the phrase goes, to which form of doctrine you were delivered. You were committed, okay? Like, um, I'm going to commit you to this place, and I put you there, I committed you there, okay? Not about you being really committed. The idea of God being committed to your salvation and sticking with you. You were committed. You were handed over. It says you were committed to the teaching. The preaching and teaching of the apostles that was passed on to these Roman Christians. What God had committed them to. So they were now following Jesus and and the word of God. It's a package deal. With the living word you get the written word and you can't separate them. A lot of people are like, oh, I follow Jesus. But they don't follow the Bible. There's a problem there. The teaching, so it includes the apostolic message that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, delivered for our sins, rose, buried, rose on the third day, ascended to the Father, and returning. Now we are to respond in, in, in faith and repentance and, and as in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, that I gave you this of first importance, uh, the gospel, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and all that, that everything gets now defined around this first importance truth. So, so the idea here is that God presses his children into the mold of his truth. If you're a growing believer, you have a deep desire to know and obey God's word. It's a desire like a newborn baby has, as 1 Peter 2, 2 says. A, a newborn baby has a desire for its mother's milk, and, and, a, and a growing believer has a desire for the word of God. And they know their life depends upon it. Move on to verse 18. Having been set free, that means you're now exempt from sin's liability, you become slaves of righteousness. This is about serving God's purposes rather than Satan's purposes. Next week, we're gonna, uh, actually in two weeks, we're going to look at the outcome of all this. What, is this, what does this get you, way, you know, in the future? What, what does this get you? We'll see that. But here what we're talking about is good slavery to God, not, not, not the bad human issues of slavery or the connotations, none of the bad things of human trafficking or human mistreatment of other humans, nothing like the abuses of the American slavery we knew. About slaves of righteousness in the best possible way. What does this mean to be a slave of righteousness? It means you present yourself to God by submitting yourself to Him and to His will. He is good, His purposes are good. He can be trusted with everything on your heart. He works for His glory and your good. He's working all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. going to serve someone you're going to serve someone and you need to you need to know that you you need to be obedient from the heart to what you have been committed to what you've been put into and then look at verse 19 i'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations 
he's talking about our weakness as humans. So he's using a master-slave analogy, and he's saying, look, I realize that humans have difficulty in grasping divine truth. That we wrestle with it. We, we, we rebel against it sometimes. We resist God's word sometimes. And he's saying, look, I, I know, I'm speaking in human terms about masters and slaves, and I'm, I'm using this because of your, your weakness. But then he goes on, and he's basically going to tell them, the third thing here is, you've got to yield yourself to God. You've got to stay on the course you've been put on. It's like Hebrews 12 talking about making straight paths for your feet. Stay in the course that you've been put on. I, he says, I'm speaking in human terms here, but you once presented your members as slaves to impurity your whole life and lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness. That's how we get the word antinomianism. Like, hey, I can do whatever I want. And sin is pictured in the Bible like a ravenous wolf. And sin's appetite only grows when it's fed. He says, this is how you used to live, but now present your members as slaves to righteousness. How do you present yourself that way? What does it mean to present yourself? It literally means to show up and, and, and put yourself right there at the disposal of someone, ready to obey, willingly submitted, resolved to follow. Stand at the ready, like at your command, as you wish, your will be done, Lord. You're ready and willing to obey. To the standard of teaching to which you were committed, that you were put into, you've been given over to God's word. And the picture of presenting is really like a, a person getting drafted into the military. If you ever got drafted in the military, you were supposed to report on a certain day and at a certain time. You present yourself, you report, you show up, you follow orders, you submit your will to another. You become a soldier. The imperative command built on indicative truth here. We need to present ourselves to God. In other words, put ourselves under his will. Now, I want to go back and tie this together because verse 17, is, I think, is really the epicenter of this passage. So clearly revealed in the teaching to which you were committed by God, delivered over to by God, leading to sanctification, okay? So, so verse 19 talks about this leads to sanctification. Your members, of right, your, your members are slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. How is a slave of righteousness sanctified? By God's spirit, through the word of God and prayer, in community with other committed believers. And so I, I, what 19 is telling us, and it ties into verse 17, is you follow the process and the challenges of actively presenting your entire being to God as slaves of righteousness that leads to growth in holiness, sanctification. Because you have, as a believer, you have been committed over, committed by God to his truth. And you're going to be sanctified if you're a believer. It's going to happen. When, Jesus, when, when, when God said, you shall be holy for I am holy, he's not saying, you're going to make yourself that way. He's saying, I'm going to make you holy because I'm holy. And hopefully in your life, there's signs of life. You're, you're a professing believer in Christ. Hopefully there's signs of life. You have a desire to please God. You have a desire to know and do his word. And you willfully resolve to follow his word as your final authority. This is about who you are a slave to, righteousness or sin. And if you're a slave to the world and the flesh and the devil, then you're going to think you're free and it'll be a mirage. It'll be a, a fake thing you're thinking. You're, you're going to really be, as Titus 3.3 3 tells us, you'll be a slave to your own thoughts and your own desires. 
The question is, am I following Jesus and the word or my mind and man's wisdom? The main applicational point of this passage is be obedient from the heart. So present yourselves as slaves to righteousness. And really it's Christians are obedient from the heart. This is the normal Christian life, folks. Um, It's defined as being committed by God to the teaching, the scriptures. This is, you know, you know what this is? This is a dramatic warning sign. It's like a, you know, you go somewhere and says, you know, danger, electricity or something. And you see this through the, through the New Testament, even stronger words. Don't swerve from the truth. Don't suffer shipwreck according to the faith. Um, the idea here is you want to keep your compass set by trusting the Spirit of God to apply the Word of God into your heart for the glory of God. You want to be obedient from the heart to God and His Word. And you want to because He freed you. So there's this imperative in verse 19, like present yourselves to God. You've been committed to the teaching that you have followed, the gospel, the word of God. Stay there. Abide in that. Don't go looking for something else. The objective word of God, not your feelings, not your subjective feelings must be your compass. God committed you to his objective word. He delivered you over to it. So it should affect your home life. It should affect your marriage and your singleness and your decisions and your morality and your work and your entertainment and your, in, and your activities. It should affect the way you present yourself to other people. It should affect your motives, your thoughts, your words, your actions. Because you've been marinated in the truth of God, and it flavors everything about you. You take on the essence of God's essential word. You consider Jesus and scripture your final governing authority. It is a governor on your goals. It is a limiter on your life. It is a silencer of your selfishness. It is the most freeing thing ever, and you've got this built-in, spirit-indwelt, constant reminder, a constant companion, the Spirit of God, impressing the objective word of God on your hearts so that you would be and continue to be obedient from the heart. Remember, Paul says, I am thankful that God did this in your life. And you have, do you notice, go back to verse 17. You who were once slaves have become You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed. He's talking about real people that he had never met, but he longed to meet, and he had heard about their testimonies, and he's like, you are being changed by God. You were changed by God, and he continues to change you. You don't stay static. Paul, in Acts 20, verse 32, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he warns them, like, don't become savage wolves, but shepherd God's flock instead. He says, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. God and his word. That's what they're commended to. They're commended to the lordship of Christ and the sufficiency of scripture. Romans started, Romans started in Romans 1, in, in verse 2, it's, it says that, that the gospel was promised beforehand it was written beforehand this is what they're this is what they've been put into is is god's god's plan for people follow him and follow what he says proverbs 3 5 and 6 is a verse that everyone memorizes right trust in the lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths 
Uh, we should not consider our own thoughts our ultimate authority. We too often are the authority. Our favorite author might be the authority. Our favorite blogger might be the authority. And this is saying, no, the Lord must be your authority. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, enlightening the eyes. And it's all these words for uh, names for the word of God. Psalm 19 is the same kind of way. Psalm 19, you want to boil down Psalm 19, the longest psalm in the Bible, you know what it is? God's, God's word is everything you need. <laughs> it endures. Isaiah 40, verse 8 says, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of our God stands forever. Man's wisdom, our thoughts, temporary. God's word, eternal. You know, I think sometimes when I meet certain Christians, I, I think they think that the Bible is a side dish. It's the main dish for the Christian life. So if you want to be a Christian on point, you, you want to be a Christian who is, who is uh, presenting themselves to God again and again and looking for his marching orders and sticking very closely to what the word says, doing what it says, both in the micro aspects of life and the macro aspects of life, both in the general things that it says and the specific things it says, and that you would be obedient from the heart, that you say, I love Jesus because he first loved me. I want to obey Jesus because he rescued me from sin. If you go over to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Let me illustrate this as well. In verse 15, let the peace of Christ dwell. See that? Let the peace of Christ rule, dwell in your hearts, in which you indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you're going to be a slave to God or a slave to righteousness, unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is kind of like quicksand. None of us have ever been in it, but we saw it on Gilligan's Island, and we know it's really bad. It's like a riptide. I've been in one of those. I had to get rescued by a lifeguard as an adult. But unrighteousness is, is, is sticky. You're tempted to lie and to cheat and to steal and to be unfaithful and to deceive someone. What you need to do here, if you're going to present yourself to God, is fight with all your might, the power of God working in you to stay on course. And you're going to need your brothers and sisters to help you. This is about knowing God and loving him so much and being guided and governed by his will and his word. And do you know what's going to happen? I'm just going to say this. you know what's going to happen? You will have professing believers who do not love or obey Christ in Scripture, and they will avoid you. And they will see you as a caveman, $2 bill, obsolete, Bible freak. Well, $2 bill, last time I checked, is still worth $2. It's not obsolete, it's still in circulation. People actually open up their Bibles. People like you, people who I know and love, you open up your Bible and you say, wow, God said this, I'm going to do that. This is not weird fanaticism. This is biblical Christianity. This is basic Christianity. You keep loving Jesus and the word of God and keep loving people and taking the high road. But it boils down to a question of authority in your life. Who will you obey? Remember what we saw before. Sin no longer has dominion over you. It is not your master anymore. There is no jurisdiction 
in your life unless you open the door for it. Jesus is your master. You do not have to obey that thought in your head. You obey from the heart the biblical teaching you receive and thank God for it. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. You will serve someone. You will serve someone. If you're, if you're today and you don't know Jesus, I gotta ask you, do you know Jesus Christ? I'm talking about Jesus here. Do you know Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you? You don't become a Christian by your family or your achievements or your um, worthiness or your status or your money or your doing of any good deed. It's only by the sheer grace of God in Jesus Christ who purchased salvation at the cross and, and shed his blood in the place of lost sinners so they might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Do you know this savior? If, if you don't, come to him today. Turn from your sins and obey Jesus by believing him. You're gonna serve someone. But believers have been set free in Christ. God has transferred you, committed you to himself, put you into Christ, set you free from slavery to sin to be obedient from the heart to the truth. And so you must present yourself to God. You must present yourself to God. Nehemiah, I was reading that the other day and it said that the good hand of my God was on me. I love that. I looked it up and I'm like, what does it mean that the good hand of God is on, on you? It means that God's invisible, sovereign hand, providentially leading, guiding, protecting, and providing is upon you. And I want to close with a story that I heard recently, and I'm going to retell it, and I hope I don't mangle it. I recently heard Steve Lawson tell a story of Win William Tyndale's life. Uh, William Tyndale lived from 1494 to 1536. At the end of his life, he was hung, and then he was burned, and then he was blown up. He was 42 years old. All for being obedient from the heart to the teaching to which he had been committed. In 1401, Parliament passed a law in England legalizing the burning of heretics at the stake. The translating the Bible into English was at that point a capital crime. So was the teaching of the Bible in English. It was a crime worthy of death in their minds. And as Tyndale came onto the scene in England, uh, England was enduring a dark night of spiritual ignorance and darkness. Hardly anyone knew the Bible. There were about 20,000 priests in England, but it says they couldn't even translate one phrase of the Lord's Prayer. They didn't know the word. And even possessing a, a copy of a few of the hand-copied Wycliffe Bibles that you could get your hands on could get you killed. Tyndale's passion was to see the Bible translated into the English language. You have God to thank for a Bible in your hand right now, and you have God to thank for using Tyndale to get it, to get it uh, printed in many ways. It just, in 1520, he comes onto the scene. He says, I want people to have a Bible in English. He's an Englishman. And so he, he translated the Bible into English, and he found a printer in Cologne, Germany, who was willing to risk his life, and he translated Matthew chapters 1 through 22, but there was a raid on the building, and he had to go somewhere else for refuge. So he went to Worms, Germany on April 18, 1521. He found some sympathizers on the Rhine River, another printer willing to risk his life. There was an ample paper supply there. It was a major river. And so uh, to England and Scotland, uh, these, these, uh, these printed New Testament translations in English would go. And 1526 was the first shipment. 3,000 Bibles hidden in bales of cotton small pocket-sized Bibles. He did the Old Testament next, Genesis to Deuteronomy. He did the 
Pentateuch first uh, began to standardize English language and grammar. It wasn't until 1706, 1703 that there was the first English dictionary. So he basically kind of set the grammar and the language. At this point, though, people started hunting him down to kill him. Tyndale couldn't be found. He couldn't, no one could know what he looked like. He had four different portraits painted of himself, of his presumed likeness at Oxford and London in the portrait gallery. Because he didn't want to be recognized, he had to remain anonymous because they would kill him for doing this. For doing what? For being obedient to the teaching that he had been committed to and wanting that in the hands of people so that they could know Jesus and grow in him. There was a shipwreck on the Rhine River. Genesis through Deuteronomy was lost, but he didn't give up. He went back to Germany and he started over with Genesis 1.1. In 1529, in 1530 it was published, and then he did Joshua through 2 Chronicles, then he did Jonah, and then people started writing letters to Tyndale. Henry VIII says, return and I will pardon you. King of England promised to appoint someone else to translate the Bible into English. Tyndale wouldn't do it, he didn't trust him. It was a trap. But he had this precise, rigorous translation from the original languages. He did 2,000 to 3,000 edits. He worked hard in 1534, the third edition, uh, 1535, the third edition came out. This was the glory of his life. In England, there was a wealthy man who gave his fortune to his son, Harry Phillips. Harry Phillips did not put it in the bank. He was a fool. He gambled it all and lost it all, and he was deeply depressed. And the Bishop of London went to him and said, you find Tyndale and have him killed, and I will repay every shilling you lost. And so he got on a ship And he goes to Belgium and he goes to Germany and he finds Tyndale and he befriends him. And Tyndale is a kind-hearted man. And Phillips arranges an ambush in a dark alley and he's arrested by guards. But praise God, John Rogers, the first martyr of Bloody Mary in 1555, finished Tyndale's work. But when Tyndale was uh, was captured, he was taken to the the Beldor Castle six miles from Brussels. He was there for 500 days. There was a religious trial. He was charged with heresy. He taught justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He taught that the human will was bound in sin. He was obedient from the heart to the teaching to which he was committed. He was a priest in the Catholic Church. They cut his hands with glass. They took his robes. They turned him over to the civil authorities. They condemned him to be executed on October 6, 1536. They set up spectator stands. They brought him to the execution stake. They lit the fire, and he cried out, God, open the eyes of the king of England. They hung him, they burned him, and they blew him up in pieces. He never married, he was never buried, he had nothing left. And God used him to give us the Bible in English, an impeccable translation. Do you love Jesus? And do you love this book? If you have been committed by God to the teaching, then you need to read it and digest it and, and help translate it. There are 1,600 languages that still have no Bible. Love it and obey it because it is God's revelation to us. Are you obedient from the heart to God and his word? Thank God if you love the word, but cry out for his mercy if you do not, if, you're, if your soul is captivated by much lesser things. We need to repent of our neglect of it and repent of our distaste for it and repent of our shame of it and pray that God would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in his word. And devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And let this book humble us and bring us low and change us and rearrange us. 
You should not rest until you bleed this book, until evidence is seen that you are obedient from the heart. And Lord, we thank you that you are holy and good and right, and thank you that you have given us your word and your spirit, and thank you, Lord, that, that, that you convince us of your truth because as you convert our hearts, we, we love you and we believe you. And I know you want us to serve you obediently from our hearts, and it's only by your power that we can do so. And so we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for committing us to your word, to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.